Hey folks, welcome to Hey Adora, your queer She-Ra podcast. I'm Meth, they them. I'm Jenny, she, her. And we're here to discuss the first episode of the series, The Sword Part 1. Fuck yeah! Fuck yeah, dude! Fuck yeah! This is the most amazing pilot episode maybe of any show ever. It's really good. The Sword Part 1 was directed by Adam Henry, written and story by Noelle Stevenson, a.k.a. Lesbian Twitter Jesus. Uh, storyboard by Jen Bennett, Diane Ha, Polly Guo, and Joseph Scott. This is the one where we meet Adora and Etheria and find out everything that the show <laughs> is going to be about. <laughs> yep. So let's start at the very beginning. So there's no song yet. This is the first episode, so we'll put a pin in that until next week. Just very serious, full screen graphic, Shira and the Princesses of Power. And the opening montage is just incredible because obviously this is an animated show, but it's an animated show made by a person and a group of people who have a strong background in comic books and graphic novels. And, you know, it really comes across. So we find out so much just from this opening montage, like that first note of music and the ether. Literally, we have a moment where we're just floating in the ether and then... You know, outer space, idyllic surface of planet, you know, and that first chord of music is like, welcome to our sacred universe of magic. You know, it's just a moment, but it sets everything up. And then zoom, beautiful planet, zoom, ugly dystopian tech part of the planet, the underbelly, the fright zone. And then as you zoom into the fright zone, the first thing I thought when I was seeing it for the first time was legit like, wow, it's like a comic book is coming to life in front of my eyes and I can dive into it. One of the things that I noticed about the beginning is that they, you know, so they established the palette of the show. They established the visual palette of the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they also established the dichotomy of, you know, Etheria and the Fright Zone itself. So the color schemes yes. for Etheria are soft. You know, there's lots of pastels. It shows like this, you know, bucolic wonderland of fucking magic. Yes. Very well phrased. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I love using bucolic and then using um, swears after it. <laughs> fuck yeah fuck yeah fuck yeah it's a nice balance of things mm-hmm. and then they slam contrast it with a green red like rust and like oxidation yeah yeah i it's hard for me to even describe what the fright zone looks like visually like all those you know dystopian tech underbelly buildings like what are they? Yes. The, the landscape itself is like violence. Yes, absolutely. I completely agree. And there are no stars, which means there are no there is no sun. And it is um, confirmed true. that Etheria does not have sun. It's true. Where does their daylight even come from? <laughs> from? They have multiple moons. This is a magical universe of magic, wherein we pin our suspended beliefs. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, so so essentially, like, instead of it being a solar planet, is a lunar planet. Um, there are multiple moons. Things are distinguished between the different moon rises. And one of the things that I did want to point out is that in kind of traditional Western thought, um, I hate traditional and Western thought, but this is the framework that we're going to be working with yes, at the moment. This is the air that we live in. Exactly. Uh, the moon is equivalent of female, you know. Indeed it is. Lady Moon. This is already establishing this world as 
you know, as a world that is female centric. That's a really good point that I had not thought of. Yeah, I mean, so that's all this incredible visual storytelling within the first 30 seconds that sets us up in this world. No words, you know, music, visuals, zoom. Here we are meeting our wholesomely gay ponytailed protagonist. Aww. Hi, Adora. Hey, Adora. So the first the first establishing shot we have of Adora is getting ready in an extremely regimented way brushing teeth, doing hair, all of these extremely regimented things. She's doing, it's the good kid semiotics, right? Like everything Mm -hmm. is proper form. Everything has good hygiene. You know, she pulls her hair back. It's tight. It's fitting. That's true. And Adora is very upbeat throughout all of this. She's not dour in her regimentation. She's like, you know, good morning. Today's going to be a great day. I'm going to be my best self. You know, it also shows when she starts, you know, hitting the punching bag and and she's brushing her teeth while she's hitting the punching bag. She's so casual about everything she's doing. She's like, boop, a doop, boom, boom, getting ready for my day, brushing my teeth. It's normalizing it. Exactly. It's so she's it's so normalized for her. But also that is how she has framed it for herself. And that is who she is in this framework. Exactly. She is yet to become a warrior. She is at this moment a soldier. She was she's purely indoctrinated into whatever the horde is selling her. She's punching princesses. Mm -hmm. And when when she's established, she is established in full light, face first. It's all bright. There's no shadow. She is. Yes. She is literally the golden child. Mm hmm. One hundred percent. Before we move past this scene. It's very subtle, but very important detail. We see on the punching bag, the poster, the propaganda poster of the evil, evil princess towering over the poor, frightened horde soldiers who are begging for mercy. You remember that poster. I do remember that poster. And that actually brings me to a very important point. So we're not going to talk about the original series. Like, that is just kind of a thing. We're not really going to bring that up. It's not, you know, it's a totally different It's not really show. important. Yeah. However, there is one point that is important that I did want to bring up. In the original series, the character of Adora is under a spell. She is under a literal spell by Shadow Weaver to be part of the Horde. And mm-hmm. she is, you know, the spell is essentially broken. And that's how she becomes She-Ra, right? Mm-hmm. In princesses of power she's under a figurative spell because she has been fully indoctrinated because that's what indoctrination is yes so she was fully indoctrinated by shadow weaver raised from a child like you know understands these people as her family and believes everything that is fed to her because she is under the figurative spell she's under their thrall and that's so much more scary isn't it absolutely yeah moving on to the training room the danger room (laughs) <laughs> the danger room. The situation room. The situation room. I love how this is so much like the danger room from X-Men where they, you know, I love that they put on the, the glasses and, you know, have to yep. fight the holograms when it's really just, yep. you know. Yeah, super serious, super serious with their training exercises. And so, again, this is like just the first less. This is literally still within the first two minutes of the show. Yep. We see everyone steps up on their little pads. Someone's missing. Someone's missing. We don't know who yet, but Adora immediately says, whispers to the other cadets, where's Katra? Most of them don't even respond, except for Lonnie. P.S. Hi, Lonnie. Hey, Lonnie. 
We love you. So much. But, you know, this is not your moment, but we love you. Lonnie's the only one who even answers, and Lonnie's entire answer is, hmm. Yep. And we see that this is a world where some people are lizards and some people are blue, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. And some people are Kyle. So some people, unfortunately, are Kyle. Oh, so Kyle. When we do see Catra, how do we see her, Meth? Um, she is fully in shadow with her back turned, and all we mm-hmm. see is her eyes. And we see her looking down on Adora from above. Yep. Right. She's in a predatory position. Yeah. And so we don't really know right away, is this person a good guy or a bad guy? Oh, is she though? Is she? I mean, (sighs) we could say that throughout the series a lot of the time. And that could be a lot of the juice. But, you know, upon first meeting her, it's like, oh, who is that girl? Who is that girl? Also, I have to just take a moment to laugh about, you know, the 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 drill sergeant when oh, yeah. he's giving them their scenario. Yes. All right, cadets, your mission is to take out the queen of the princesses. Like, I'm sorry, that made me bust a gut. Uh, yeah. It was so hilarious. And, you know, and liberate Bright Moon in the name of Lord Hordak. So that's yep. such a clear setup. And this is such a clear, you know, framing of how they're being indoctrinated. These Horde kids are having their free will subverted because th- all they know is what they're being taught, that they're the good guys who stand for liberation and freedom. So, like, what is society? They've never seen anything different. You know, they are the colonizers and conquerors, but they don't even know. Yep. And we'll kind of get to who's, you know, the self-awareness around that. Yes. Yes. In other parts very soon. So they're training. They're working hard. They're kicking ass. No one more so than Adora. Yep. (laughs) Seriously, Kyle. Oh, yeah. We get our first seriously, Kyle, at two minutes and 24 seconds. I definitely want a seriously, Kyle t-shirt. Oh, so then Katra swoops in. Legit, right at the last second, and she pushes this basically totally already destroyed battle bot into the hole without having done any work, totally straight up deadpan, having no expression at all. That's the thing about Katra. Katra does not fight hard, she fights smart. That's true. And she maintains a facade of total indifference. Which is a bogus facade. A facade, is it? It's a facade. It's a total (laughs) facade. But so then... We get to the juicy juice of Catra and Adora's first interaction. And again, it's Catra standing over Adora, who is in a vulnerable prone position on the floor. She falls in the hole. She saves herself from really falling with her with her stick. She's got her stick in the deep, deep hole. Yeah, Math. she does. <laughs> Would you like to say anything about that? Nope. 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 Oh, really? You're not taking the bait? Wow. No, no, I am. I'm not mastering that bait right now. <laughs> oh, nice. Zing. Okay, so, and then Catra looks down at her, but then Catra is smiling down at her. Aw, sweet baby Catra. The first thing that we hear Catra say is, hey, Adora. Yes, that is the first thing we hear Catra say. Yep. That's gay. Not gonna lie. The way Catra giggles and she says, aw, you know, nothing's too low for me. <laughs> Like, oh my god. So gay. So gay. First nomination for the the moment that is the we all know that we all know we know moment, aka gayest moment. That is some gay ass shit. Yes. That is the first one. But like her voice, the quality of AJ's voice, that sultriness, it's incredible. It is very gay. And this is also the first time we see, uh, this is the big motif alarm. Like, meh. So the first interaction that we see between Catra and Adora 
is the hand reach. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the one of the motifs in the show, the visual motifs in the show, is either Catra or Adora reaching for each other's hand. Yes, and it is shown only in parts where their vulnerability is uh, important to the scene, physically or emotionally or both yep the first scene is this one of the last scenes in the show is actually uh you know catra reaching out to adora that's right that's absolutely right keep an eye out on that one kids we're going to be pointing that one out after the training exercise is finished they go back to their lockers they're taking off their uniforms you know laughing you know it's locker room time yeah gay locker room time um and you know like it's clear that adora is not really pissed um, but, you know, Katra obviously enjoys rubbing it in, getting her jokes, <laughs> you know, laughing at how seriously Adora takes training. Right. While Katra just strolls in late and coasts through on her steam. Like, that's their, that's clearly their MO. That's how it always is. It's clearly an established pattern. But, you know, there's an important line right there, too, when Katra says, you should have seen the look on your face. You were like, ah, no betrayal and then she falls on the floor laughing oh that's not a throwaway line it is not a throwaway because line. because later you catra will be the one saying that and you will not be laughing yes this is foreshadowing this is five shadowing really I mean, this is like 17 <laughs> shadowing also this is the first time we really get to see catra's tail being the place where all her feels live Oh, you're right. You know, does anyone not love Catra's tail? It's the only part of her that gives away her feels. Sweet baby Catra. Yeah, I love how like this establishes their, you know, this is establishing their relationship. You know, they have inside Mm -hmm. jokes. They're, Mm -hmm. you know, holding each other. There's so much physical contact in this scene between the two of them. Oh, yeah. And not just in this scene. Most of the time when they're together. But yes, in this scene, there is a lot of physical contact. It establishes that their that their friendship and relationship is very based in physicality, mm-hmm. or excuse me, expresses itself in in a fit in physicality. So this is the type of relationship that we see that is very touchy feely. Yes, but also I think it's really funny that like Catra's the one making the jokes, Adora's the one who's so serious, so earnest, trying her hardest. But also, is that a mouse? <laughs> they can both give and they can both get. <laughs> Yes, Mef, would you like to say something? Ah, uh, yes. Um, insert immature gay joke here. Also, insert immature gay joke about insert, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> okay. They are able to have fun with each other among this bleak hellscape in which they have been raised. Bleak hellscape. Yes. And speaking of bleak hellscapes. Oh, man. Who should oh, enter we're there now? already. It's Shadow Weaver. Shadow Weaver is the evil witch of exposition. <laughs> oh, my God. First of all, Lorraine Toussaint. Holy shit. Incredible. Amazing. Incredible. I think probably most everyone who is listening has seen her on Orange is the New Black, mm-hmm. if nothing else. I mean, she has, you know, a huge resume. Um, and, it, you know, right away, like, they establish so much about her immediately. Like, she has that scary floating. She doesn't walk. She floats. And her hair also floats in that very eerie way. And, you know, immediately she praises Adora and insults Catra in one breath. Yep. She's a praise bomb. Right. Because she she praises Adora, but over praises her and then, you know, immediately insults Catra to immediately essentially fry both of their circuits. Like she's good cop and bad cop for both of them at the exact same time. 
Yeah, she, she's so hell-bent on turning them against each other, driving a wedge between them, crushing their spirit by crushing their relationship, you know, because good soldiers don't have friendships, really. Right. And this is establishing a pattern that we, we see about her, you know, drawing the comparisons in order to really to drive Adora away. Yeah. And, you know, Adora's looking very tense. She doesn't want conflict to happen. She's got her arm around Katra. She's trying to present them as a unit show solidarity between them. It's so obvious that Catra is confident. She already knows how this is going to play out and nothing she can do will make a difference anyway. So, you know, she pops off a little back talk, always serving up those pep talks, huh, Shadow Weaver? You know, it's like she knows she's fucked, but she's still going to give you sass because that is who she is. And God damn it, if you're going to squeeze all the spirit out of her, it's not going to happen. Yeah, she's not going to she's not going to go out without a fight. She's not going to yeah. she's not going to go out without, you know, without popping off. Yes, but then, you know, Shadow Weaver's reaction to that, the shot of, of the hair shadows overtaking Katra while Adora stands frozen beside her and they're looking at each other. The hair shadows are just covering Katra and they both look, Katra looks uncomfortable, but like resigned. Adora looks a little bit more like, oh my God, you like, shut up, don't get in trouble. Like she still thinks if Katra just behaves right, it'll go better for her. Which right is stupid, frankly, because she has grown up alongside her all these years in the Horde, seeing how Shadow Weaver never treats Catcher right, no matter what happens. So, I mean, as we see here, Adora does, you know, attempt to stand up for Catra. But when it, you know, when it kind of comes to this, this higher stakes thing, Shadow Weaver does the silence. And then we see them, you know, the dichotomy of that. We see that uh, Adora immediately is like, you got to be nicer instead of being like, nah, this bitch is fucked up, you know? Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's the people pleasing versus Mm -hmm. the rebelling, which are two very distinct um, reactions to trauma. Yes. Right. We have the person that, you know, uh, takes the trauma out and and, uh, acts out and rebels. And we have the person that takes the trauma and, you know, instead of acting out or rebelling, does the exact opposite and is has to be perfect for everything. And this is kind of the establishing uh, branching of how they are both able to deal with this trauma, which is a major theme throughout the show. It's so important. And this little tiny scene also is kind of the establishing scene to show us that Adora and Katra have lived childhood profoundly influenced by trauma. That that's going to be so much of what the show is about. And the fact that in this scene we see Shadow Weaver both psychologically and physically separating them. Yep. And the way they look at each other as they part, it's so clear that they both don't want to be separated and it hurts them so much. And that whole abusive dynamic is so clear in that one moment. Like, this is all their trauma is, you know, Shadow Weaver is a traumatizing um, power figure who is their guardian. You know, she uses her power specifically to separate them, pit them against each other in this way by treating them differently. And that's the dynamic. And you're right. They do both have different reactions to it and it plays out very differently. But they are both being treated very differently also. Obviously. And, you know, it's very, very pertinent to the queer world because, you know, I a lot, a lot, a lot of queer people have gone through a lot, a lot, a lot of trauma. Yeah. And I mean, that's a queer narrative, too. The like, you know, fuck you or the, you know, nope, I am the I am the model queer citizen. Yeah. It's kind of like the HRC crowd yep. versus ACT UP yep. versus, you know, 
coalitions that come up to be organically around queer communities of color, trans communities of color that, you know, don't have centralized leadership because they come up organically through the community in grassroots ways versus like top down, typically white led, very structured organizations that tend to be focused more on you know, mainstreaming gay society. Yeah, there's the phrase, you know, Muhammad does not go to the mountain, the mountain comes to Muhammad. Yep. Um, so, you know, there's the Muhammad going to the mountain very much like the mainstream and the mountain coming to Muhammad is, you know, I'm not mainstream, you should respect me for who I am, not Word. I need to conform to who you are. Exactly. Catra's not conforming to shit. No. Better get used to it. Catra is um, uh, not gay isn't happy, but queers and fuck you. Yeah. Oh, and there's one more little point I wanted to touch on before we move on to the next scene, which is Shadow Weaver talking to Adora while ushering her down the hallway yep. and presenting her with her Force Captain badge. Um, so, you know, Shadow Weaver promotes Adora to Force Captain, but then she tells her that she can't bring her team. So who exactly is she captaining? Like, who is she going to be the captain of if she can't bring her team? <laughs> That's the unanswerable question. I mean, it's answerable in terms of the general theme of Shadow Weaver, right? Like this is once again, another part of her separating Adora from right. her team, from her teammates, from Catra. So she has more control over her. Oh, I know. I know. I know. But I'm just saying like yeah. the rank of captain, who are you going to be the captain of? <laughs> yeah. Um. But so, you know, this is Shadow Weaver telling Adora, this is it. You've made it, kid. I'm, I'm sending you up to the big leagues. And- Clearly, Shadow Weaver wants Adora to be super, super into this and be excited about it. And Adora, especially once she finds out she's not bringing her team, isn't that excited about it. And she's obviously conflicted. And Shadow Weaver is just really f framing it for her so strongly. Again, we see the indoctrination that's happening. I've seen talent in you since I found you as an orphan child. Like, okay. You saw talent in her when she was a baby, but we'll let that go. Um, you know, this is what I've raised you for. Is this not what you've wanted since you were old enough to want anything? Ugh, that line. When you break it down, though, Ugh. that's like, is this not what you've wanted since you were too young to know what you wanted so I could slip in and tell you what you wanted? Exactly. You know, yet another point to Shadow Weaver's, uh, Shadow Weaver's spell. Yep. Yep. And so, you know, Shadow Weaver leaves her gazing out the window over the Fright Zone hellscape again. And she's clearly conflicted, Adora, at the end of that scene when she's staring out over the hellscape, I think. Oh, I absolutely agree. I mean, this is kind of the first time we see the conflict of Adora. What does Adora want versus what is expected of Adora? Yes. And, you know, Adora's motivations are very much doing what is expected of her. I mean, that's a major drive throughout the show, right? Yeah. And that's what people pleasers do. Right. Exactly. And that's the tension. You know, that's that's Adora's internal tension. Yes. Even when she is with the rebellion, I mean, her being able to question whether she can do what she wants is central to the entire journey yep. versus what she feels yep. she is obligated to do. But, you know, at the, at the core of, of her struggle right now is what she thinks is the right thing to do. That's what she's wrestling with. She thought she knew what the right thing to do was, and now she's no longer sure. Very fascinating subject. So Sure. I mean, it's definitely central to this episode, Absolutely. at the very least. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. But now... Do you want to move on to Bright Moon? Now we're moving on to Bright Moon, baby! Oh my god, everything is bisexual lighting. Oh. It's all bisexual flag colors everywhere. Yes, Bright Moon. 
is bisexual heaven. <laughs> I was going to say the exact same thing. Really? Yeah. Welcome to Bi Moon. Yeah. It's an incredibly beautiful... I mean, all the landscapes are incredible on this show. And they lend so much character to to the communities that live within each landscape and show us so much about them. You know, there's beautiful waterfall and this gorgeous floating runestone, you know, and the castle and, you know, everything is like glimmering. Glimmering, you say. I might say, which might lead us to meet someone. Is it? Is it Glimmer? Commander Glimmer. It's Commander Glimmer. Commander Glimmer. Oh my God. I could just plots. <laughs> plots away, friend. I would like to plots at the mention of Commander Glimmer, the tiny chutzpah machine. Oh my God. She is, she is the tiny chutzpah machine. She is just like, she just churns out chutzpah everywhere she goes. Yeah. But although she is tiny, we could discuss that she has a non-traditional body type for cartoons, True. which is fantastic. She thick. She's sick. Yeah. Here for it. We are here for it. I like her thighs. Yeah. I mean, thick thighs save lives. And if we are going on that, then my then my thick thighs are the Red Cross. <laughs> my thighs are so thick that they save multiple lives. <laughs> <laughs> so here's Commander Glimmer, who is not afraid to make a scene in front of the Queen's Royal Court, which seems, again, very ballsy for a tiny commander. She's a hot-headed rebel girl. Yeah, so like, you know, what would inspire a young commander to be so ballsy in front of Her Majesty's Royal Court? Is it because it's her mom? Mom? You never let me do anything! And it's so, you know, it's funny because we see the contrasting Shadow Weaver as mother versus Angela as mother. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, obviously the, you know, obviously visually they're different visually they're extremely different except that they're both tall and skinny and they're both tall and skinny and also i mean angela is literally an angel yes an immortal angel an immortal angel whereas shadow weaver yes. is surrounded by shadow she is shadow she weaves shadow but, but so you know queen angela is concerned with about glimmer's safety above her military use even though she's a commander Glimmer's first point, why did you make me a commander if you're not going to let me fight? Why did she make her early teen daughter a commander? She's clearly in her early teens. This is early teen behavior. She's the youngest of the group. Yeah, I would agree. Even if she's not physically, like, actually the youngest of the group, she acts the youngest of the group. She does. Um, you know, she has a very black and white worldview. And listen, I was the exact same way as a young teen. You know, when I came out, I came out hard at the, you know, very end of ninth grade, beginning of 10th grade. You know, justice was very black and white. And it wasn't just about queer justice. I was very black and white on racial justice, environmental justice. You know, there was no middle ground and there's no middle ground for Glimmer. She doesn't want to give up anything to the Horde. She wants to defend. Yes. And, you know, it's understandable. She's very passionate and we're going to learn more about that as we go on. And but, you know, she's so ballsy. I love, you know, she doesn't care that she's embarrassing her mom in front of the royal court. Oh, I'm embarrassing you. That's just such a great line. Yeah, yeah. And one thing I did want to bring up is that um, what we see kind of throughout this episode and going into the next episode is that Glimmer is very driven by ego. Yeah. She's very driven by like, I could have done this. I need to get the sword, you know, and she, she couches it in the, but it's good for the rebellion, but it's almost an afterthought um, the way that she, she does it. 
I think it's more than an afterthought. I feel like she's justifying it. But I feel like a lot of her drive is is ego and a lot of her drive is proving that she's worthy of something. Yes. Yeah. I mean, certainly I, I agree with you that Glimmer is motivated by wanting to prove herself to her mother, who is an immortal angel. So right. obviously that's a large shadow to live under. But Glimmer, a deep defining part of who she is, is that she is passionate about saving her people and standing up for them and not letting any bad fate befall anyone and not giving up an inch to the horde. Yeah, but she is about saving her people. You know, that's that and that's the that's the emphasis sometimes that Glimmer has is that she is about, you know, saving her people. Yes. Do we want to get back to the Fright Zone? Yes, let's get back to the Fright Zone. Let's get back to the Fright Zone. Because Adora is spending some broody alone time with her Force Captain badge. Because it's everything she thought she ever wanted, but somehow now that she has it, she feels kind of (sighs) weird. Gee, if only someone would straddle her. If only someone would come help her with this conundrum by physically... Lying on top of her from above. Yeah. Uh, oh, wait. That is what happens because fucking gay. Because Catra. I legitimately have in my notes, geez, Catra, do you really have to just pounce on and straddle Adora? Answer, yes, because fucking gay. And that's my second nomination for gayest moment, a.k.a. we all know that we all know. And I'm just going to let you guys know real quick, the reason that I am so fond of this funny little phrase, we all know that we all know, is because I am um, a cultural theory nerd, but I do have a master's degree in media studies. And so part of what makes this show so exciting and so fun and so cathartic for us as queer audience is the fact that we have this awareness as the audience that we all know that this shit is queer and we all know that it's meant to be read as queer because of who's making it and what's going on. And we all know that everybody else knows too. You know that you're not just sitting in your own little bubble being like, wait, is this queer? Am I crazy? Am I the only one who sees it? Because that's, you know, how you felt when you were a child, certainly. That's how I felt, even though I didn't have specific vocabulary around it when I was five years old watching Gem and the Holograms having funny feelings about Kimber and Stormer. I had very strong, very strong, very strange feelings that I knew were not the intended feelings, were not the socially correct feelings. I didn't know if anyone else was feeling them with me. But now in Shira and the Princesses of Power in Etheria, we all know that we all know we know. And it's just so wonderful. So Catra pouncing on Adora and straddling her is my gayest moment nomination number two that we all know that we all know i'm into that i mean i'm into like i'm into like that whole scene but yeah no it's fucking gay yeah kid so then we have you know broody times after after we get the pouncing and well it's not broody right away because i i actually do want to focus on the moment when katra first sees that adora has been promoted to force captain she is actually super stoked she's happy for adora initially um she's not jealous as long as she thinks that it goes without saying that they're both going to go together, yes. she's super stoked. She's purring. She's, yeah. I mean, yeah, she's purring at the thought that she could blow something up, but still under Adora's lead. That's fine with her. We're going to see the world and conquer it. Yes. That 
sentence itself is Catra. We're going to see the world and conquer it. And the the intention there is we're going to do everything together. I pin my future. I pin my... Happiness. Yeah, happiness. And I pin my um, sense of right and wrong on us being together. Which, to be fair, is codependent and probably pretty unhealthy. Oh, yeah. I mean, they <laughs> definitely have a super codependent relationship. But that, that does. That is Catra. That sums it all up right there. Yep. But they can't stay in that happy moment, sadly. No, they cannot. Because Adora has to tell Catra that she is not going. Yep. And that makes Catra sad. And was Catra sad, we are all sad. Yep. It's such a shitty moment because, of course, it's, you know, it's legit for Adora to want her best friend to be happy for her. But also it's legit for Catra to not be able to be happy when she just found out that she's being left behind. And, you know, this is actually like a really gaslighty moment for Adora where, you know, Adora very much snaps into Will Shadow Weaver said you can't come. And she's like, well, you are disrespectful. I agree. Um, And it's like, dude, she is like abused so much all of the time. And you're like, well, you know, it's kind of your fault. Like it's it's not like a hard, well, it's kind of your fault, but it is for super gaslighting. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. And I wish that Catcher's response to that has been, had been, why should I respect her when she treats me like shit no matter what I do and has for my entire life? But that's not what Catcher says. Catra says she's just bitter because she doesn't have any real power that doesn't come from Hordak and everyone knows it. I guess we need to know that right away. But the truth is, Catra has no reason to respect Shadow Weaver because Shadow Weaver is going to abuse her no matter what she does. But it also is important for Catra's character. This establishes Catra as the socially intelligent one. She knows what the Horde is up to and she understands manipulation. Adora just cannot get out of her own framework of praise. Because she is so constantly praised, she cannot get out of the indoctrination because she is getting positive reinforcement that her, you know, that it's working. She has no motivation to question anything. You're absolutely right. Yeah, Catra does. She's like, well, why the hell is this happening to me? Oh, I see it. I have the ability to kind of step out because I'm not being coddled by this. This isn't serving me. I think motivation might not even be the right word in this case. Because, you know, it's it's almost like Adora has no ability to see her own. You know, the expression, a fish can't see its own water. That's true. I hope most people know that expression. You're so immersed in your own reality, you think it's objective. Your own reality is not objective. There is no objective reality. Just accept it. Um, but Catra has a very high social intelligence. She can see how these systems work, how she can manipulate, how she is being manipulated, how everything is being manipulated, and how she can manipulate back. Adora just she is always doing her best and she just kind of assumes that everyone else is always doing their best unless they give her a reason to show her otherwise. Right. Exactly. So yes, Katra is super bummed and her response to this situation when she feels vulnerable and upset is to flee it. She jumps away with her Katniss and there is an incredibly beautiful shot here that I don't want to miss of Catra up on top of this structure that I, again, don't know how to describe because it doesn't seem to do anything. It's like this big, you know, 
techie Lego construction thing that has like a platform on the end of it. And she's by herself on the end of this platform with this beautiful, huge orange moon behind her. Is Catra in shadow in this too? I think she's in shadow. You see her, you know, you see her profile. Right. Okay. And then of course, like she knows Adora is coming after her. We know she knows that. Yep. Adora has to go out and get her uh, lesbian climbing gear. <laughs> she has to go to... Uh, uh, what is the uh, Ethereum equivalent of REI? EEI? EEI. So she's got to go to EEI and get her carabiners. Oh, but she already had that shit. Are you kidding? She has That's all that true. shit in her backpack all the time. Oh my God. Does she have her Nalgene with her too? No, she has a camelback. It's part of the backpack. She totally has a camelback. You're right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're right. She's always ready to go camping. Yep. <laughs> So once they're both up there together, again, like this is Catra's one solace. This is the thing that keeps Catra going is knowing that Adora will always come for her. Yep. Knowing that Adora has her back. And, you know, when it's that or nothing, it's a pretty big fucking deal. Yep. Yep. And Adora totally does come through. Catra just wants to get out of this dump before she dies of boredom. As long as they're together. Adora in this moment has the answer has some stolen skiff keys in her little paws so they can take a joyride to make her girl feel better. Yeah, And this is a beautiful, fun, romantic, innocent scene. Off on the skiff they go. Where we've learned that even though they are gays that drive, they are not particularly gays that are good at driving. No, they have probably never driven the skiff before. I have in my notes here. Oh my god, Adora took her out on a motorcycle ride. Yeah, oh my god. Um, but before we even get to that point, um, there is another moment that is my top, top nomination for the we all know that we all know gayest oh. moment. What is it? Um, um, it's the look that Catra gives Adora when they are first out on the skiff and Adora is driving and Catra hasn't yet started to wrestle her for it. And Catra is below Adora this time. She's just looking up at her, gazing up at her with this look that's like, dang, my girl's the bomb. <laughs> I should wrestle with her. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, you know, it's a really beautiful little moment. I should wrestle with her. I mean, who hasn't had that? Who hasn't thought about that when they've gazed up lovingly at their quote unquote best friend that they've had a crush on since they were eight? Or younger than that. Or younger than that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, because, you know, she's always loved her, of course. Of course. I think they've both always loved each other. Yeah, they have a beautiful love. So they're gay wrestling in the skiff. The skiff is not meant to be driven that way. It's pretty hectic. They're crashing around in the Whispering Woods, which P.S., very much has a stylistic reminiscence of some Avatar landscapes, for sure. It looks a little bit like the spirit world to me. It does look like the spirit world, yeah. Um, And so Adora ends up being knocked out of the skiff, crashing, crashing, crashing through the underbrush down to the floor, boom. And she dusts herself off, and it's Excalibur in a shaft of light. The call! Literally, there is a mysterious voice. Mm-hmm. balance must be restored and then there's a quick montage flashes of images um did you write down what this all these quick images are do you want to say them i did not i just said shiny sword <laughs> <laughs> i will 
tell you. Etheria from space. Something really shiny on the landscape. The runestone of Bright Moon. The sword. First one's ruins. Majestic avatar state Shira with the glowy hair. Over the shoulder look. While a baby is crying. <laughs> Light Hope saying Etheria must seek a hero. And then... This is where I'd like to pause for one hot sec to talk about the definition of the word etheria. Ethereal. Ethereal. Because we are on etheria. There are many definitions for ethereal, but the one that most caught my fancy for our purposes is extremely delicate and light in a way that seems too perfect for this world. Celestial, heavenly, unworldly, intangible. Very fascinating. So Adora wakes up. And the audio void from the mysterious voice saying Adora, Adora, to Catra saying Adora, Adora. Aww. When she wakes up, how are they positioned again? Uh, well, Catra is straddling her on top of her, very, very close to her face. Just really trying to, just, just trying to get in there, trying to, yeah. trying to figure out what's going on with her, you know, her gay that can drive. Don't be brain damaged. Are you brain damaged? Knock, knock, knock. So one thing I do want to bring up is, yeah, she's straddling, she's straddling her, and she's like, oh, Adora, Adora, wake up! You, you know, how are you? What's going on? Are you brain damaged? Shadow Weaver is going to kill me. Yes. Her first response wasn't, are you okay because of me? It was, Shadow Weaver is going to kill me. It's more evidence of Catra living in fear of Shadow Weaver. Yes. She holds Catra accountable for Adora, and she doesn't separate Catra from Adora. She separates Adora from Catra. Psychologically, Catra's like a satellite of Adora. Yes, that is well put. Shadow Weaver's an awesome mom, isn't she? Oh, the best. The best. I wish I, wish I had ten just like her. Yep, ten, just... <laughs> Ten moms. I want to have ten moms and they're all Shadow Weaver. <laughs> I wanted to bring up the hero's journey because yes, what yes, yes. narrative podcast would be complete without someone with a bachelor's degree bringing up Joseph Campbell? And I'm going to bring up Jung in the next episode. So let's talk about Campbell now. Ooh, I'm excited. So <laughs> Joseph Campbell expounded upon the idea of the monomyth, the most famous version he did of that is called the power of myth uh and the hero's journey is a way to i it's a, a framework to identify the hero's story you know literally the journey that a hero takes from when they start becoming a hero to when they do their you know until they do the thing because the hero is always doing the thing it's one cycle of a hero's story yes the framework is most famously used in pop culture uh with star wars so Joseph Campbell was deeply influential on George Lucas, who actually got the book The Power of Myth and based the story of Luke Skywalker pretty much beat for beat on the beats that Joseph Campbell identifies in The Hero's Journey. Noel Stevenson is a massive, massive Star Wars fan. It's pretty influential in some of the visual styles throughout Shira. Definitely Absolutely. later on. And in the narrative styles. I mean, she talks about how, you know, the first things that she used to write are like Star Wars fanfic. Like, so of course that. that that is going to bleed in. So this is the calling or the call to adventure. And this is the hero begins in a situation of normality. In this case, it's Catherine Adora just having a good time going out, you know, being some gals, being pals. Gal pals, joyride. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hero begins a situ uh, situation of normality from which some information is received that acts as a call to head off into the unknown. And this is the fun part. According to Campbell, yeah. this region is represented by a distant land, a forest, a kingdom underground, beneath the waves, or above the sky. So it is a landscape that starts from a place of normality and goes into a, a mystery place. Wow. They are literally going into the whispering woods. From this, like, normal thing, they crash in the woods. Adora is called. Yes. Not the first time we're going to hear about the hero's journey, and I also would like to point out that 
there are subversions to this within the show. And though the hero's journey is understood to be uh, universal, the idea of, of anything being universal is highly problematic. So we're going to be using the term archetypal, as Jenny mentioned. Yes, and archetypal, of course, doesn't mean always, always 100% of the time. It means often. Yes. So angry baby by baby glimmer. Oh, I love that everything in, in glimmer's existence is in bisexual colors. <laughs> I know. I know. I mean, it's it's very defining for her. And I love how this is this is an honorable mention for gayest moment. I know it's not going to win, but Glimmer writing angry letters to her mom in her journal because queer processing out loud on her bed with her feet up. I know. That's pretty gay. It's so gay. And then there's a real quick um, misdirect where there's a shadowy figure outside Glimmer's room in the woods and there's an arrow shooting over her head. Oh my God. But surprise, it's an arrow with an adorable note with a winky face and it's her best friend, Bo. Sweet baby Bo. I love it. Sweet baby Bo. So I would like to point out that uh, Bo, sweet baby Bo actually has the, almost the exact same intro as Katra in that he's introduced in the shadows, but it is much more of a misdirect instead of. It's a hundred percent misdirect. Yeah, it's a, it's a misdirect. I mean, it's like Sweet Baby Bo does not live in the shadows. He he walks right out of those shadows and says, "Hey, Glimmer." Whereas Catra slinks around, and you only see her, you know, at the very last minute. So. Yes. So, and Glimmer over here, she is honoring the terms of her grounding, even though she can teleport. Yeah. He's yeah. like, "Come out!" She's like, "I'm grounded." Yeah. What? I'm grounded. So then she has to show us that she can teleport. She teleports him into her room. Yep. I love uh, exactly that. That, you know, to show the audience that Glimmer can teleport, as well as to, you know, kind of show the ridiculousness of her being grounded. She literally just like poofs out the door, grabs Bo, and then goes back into her room. Yeah. You know, she's she's not like, F this, I'm running away. She's like... <sighs> yeah, because fundamentally, she's a good kid. Yeah, exactly. But can we talk a little bit more about who Bo is? <gasps> Please. Bo is the guy who will listen to you blow off steam about how your mom won't give you enough military independence and fold your laundry while giving you life advice. Bo is the exact like opposite of toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. Yes. And actually, that little throwaway moment of Bo folding, I don't think it's laundry. I think her room is just messy and he's tidying. Yeah. That tiny little moment of him like folding her her messy clothes and putting them away while he's listening to her rant is one of the first real signifying moments of the total lack of patriarchy in this world. Agreed. Agreed. And uh, I would like to tack on to that. That not only is he sitting there folding it, but he's folding it, asks where it is, nonchalantly, she says it goes in that drawer, does not break the beat of the conversation. Like, yep. it shows not not only is this a fine thing for, you know, him to be doing, but this is the familiarity of their relationship. Yes, this is normal. Yeah, this is normal. And this is a comfort thing. This is how Bo comforts. Bo comforts mm -hmm. by taking care of. Bo literally has a heart on his chest. He does... And also, I love the fact that, you know, while he's also so supportive and he's such a good listener, he's also like not just going to tell her whatever she wants to hear. He's also going to tell her the truth. He's like, yeah. well, you know, your mom's got a point. You did just jump in there with no plan. 
And, you know, you could have been really hurt. The only way you got out was using your teleportation powers and you can't always control them that well. So now we learn also exposition, exposition. Glimmer doesn't have total control over these powers. They're not infinite. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, that Bo is going to give her a reality check. Yep. We also learned that Bo is the the emotional intelligence of the show. Yes. Bo understands the emotional intelligence of all of the situations involved. There are very few situations in the show that I can think of, certainly not off the top of my head, where Bo does not understand the emotional underpinnings of the actions. Yes. That is so important. Um, So the end of this scene is that Bo is trying to convince Glimmer to accompany him to go find this piece of First One's tech out in the Whispering Woods that he's tracking on his magical iPad because that will totally impress her mom and get her back in good. And Glimmer's like, yeah, well, I'm grounded. And at that moment, of course, her mom comes knocking at the door. She zips him back out outside to the ground. He's sitting there chilling and we hear from his point of view in the woods the adorable faint sounds of like young teen mother daughter fighting in the background. It's like, rah, 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 rah. and then, you know, she just poofs by his side. I'm in. <laughs> She's like, let's go. Let's go. Another thing I want to point out is we also learn here that Bo is an engineer. Bo is a scientist. Bo is extremely good with tech and having that kind of, you know, having him embody both, you know, being the heart, uh, you know, the emotional intelligence and also the technical intelligence of the core best friend squad is also a really really lovely character move yeah i don't think he's a scientist but he is a techie guy for sure he's a tech yes 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 no you're right he's indispensable that's true yes they're off for an adventure and now we are going back to the fright zone to one of my favorite moments in the entire series jenny do you want to tell the people all of our favorite moments so this is the moment where we see adora and katra are sleeping in their shared bed in the Horde Cadet Dormitory. It's a little bit more than halfway through the episode. So first of all, we see that Catra does have her own bunk, of course, Um, but not only is she choosing not to use her bunk, her bunk is tussled. It's not neat. It has been slept in. So the implications there are that she went to sleep in her own bed at bedtime. And then after everybody else was asleep, she snuck out of her bed to sneak into Adora's bed because they can't just both get in bed together at bedtime and be like, okay, good night, everybody. We're going to bed in our bed now. We're going to spoon in this twin size bed. Nothing is gay there. Nope, nope, nope. Nope. So that's really, really gay. Even though we know that Catra has the bed above, we do see it must, we never actually ever see them sleeping in separate beds. So from the uh, visual narrative standpoint of the show, it is their bed. Totally. Another thing that strikes me because of the pain and the adolescent memories that goes with it is that Catra is sleeping at the foot of Adora's bed. And the implications there for me are there's a certain measure of aloofness and insecurity because it would take a lot more guts for her to crawl up under the covers fully, like you said, spooning Adora and being like, hey, babe, how you doing? You know, the foot of the bed is like, whatever, I don't need you here. You know, I could hop away anytime like a cat. Yeah, she is also sleeping like a literal cat. Like a literal cat. But we don't know whether or not anyone else has ever seen it. We have to assume that the other cadets have woken up in the middle of the night to pee at some point, get a drink of water, and they have seen it and chosen not to make a fuss. Yeah, I don't feel like anybody, like any of the any of the horde kids, are surprised by anything. Yeah, I, don't I mean, think they give a shit. Yeah, they're they're like, oh, it's those two. Yep. 
Also, Rogelio sleeps in an adorable lizard ball. And Kyle is his bunkmate. Of course Kyle is his bunkmate. Aww. So, Adora is restless because the sword is just calling her, man. More of the calling. So, Adora wakes up and is determined to go figure out what's going on. And as she's slipping out of the bed, she sits up. And she gives Catra this look that is so full of, well, adoration. It is so full of love. It's the kind of look that you give someone that you share a bed with in an intimate way when you're getting up before them. And that's exactly what this is. There's no lack of intimacy in this small, and it's a very small beat. It is a very small beat. It is maybe like a three second beat. It's tiny, but those tiny intimacies are the biggest because they are the most familiar. They are the most deeply ingrained. It's not the giant gestures. It's the everyday choices that make a relationship intimate. And you don't get more intimate than trusting somebody to be awake near you when you're asleep and vice versa. Mm-hmm. But then she sneaks out, which is great. <laughs> and Catra is all ready to go because she, it's, this is so sad. She just assumes that if Adora's going to go check something out, that it goes without saying that they're both going to go. Exactly. But this is something Adora has to do on her own. She doesn't frame it as, I need to do this on my own. She says, I don't want you to get in trouble on my behalf. But she's going to get in trouble either way. We both, everyone knows that. But it's also more of Adora's totally awesome, like, self-sacrifice bullshit, you know? Yes, that is true. Don't get in trouble for me. I will take this. You just, you just make sure you cover, you know? Yeah, I will take all the risk. I would never let you risk yourself. Exactly. It's like, dude, shut up. But it's also really heartbreaking because she doesn't see the fact. She doesn't see the fact that Katra is going to get in trouble for her no matter what happens. Right. Also, like, dude, just let your girlfriend come with you. But, you know, this is her hero quest. It's not Katra's hero quest. I, I know. And they, but... they've never really. And yeah, they are deeply entwined. They've never really had super separate identities before. But this is this is Adora's thing right now. Oh, definitely. The the function of this is that, you know, Adora does need to, does to to answer the call of action. Adora does not deny her call. So that's, you know, it doesn't have, like I said, every single beat of the hero's journey does not have to happen, but... They have to happen in the same order, even if they don't all happen. Right. It's true. It's very, very true. Yeah. So she has to go and Katra has to stay. And that's just how it is. And and that's just how sweet baby Katra. I know. I know. It's rough. But, you know, this is the beginning of them starting to split in separate directions. And having their own journey so then they can come back to each other stronger to defeat the ultimate evil. It's only going to take five seasons to get there. Only five seasons. Yep. Meanwhile... Bo and Glimmer are also out in the woods tracking something else that may or may not also be the same thing that Adora's tracking. We don't know. They're looking We don't know. They're just looking at their magical iPad, man. There's something yeah. something beeping like crazy on that magical iPad. Yep. They're just tracking something. They don't know. And then <laughs> there's a big, big glow and light. Big ass glow and light. Everybody can kind of see it now. Bo, Glimmer, Adora, all converging. And then what happens, Meth? It's the dumbest fight possible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like before they fight, also like I Bo and Glimmer's reaction to Adora is also just like hilarious. They yell, Horde Soldier! And they like wave their arms around without even moving their bodies. 
They look like damn fools and they wrestle like like children. So I think that's another it's another thing that I want to point out is that a lot of the a lot of the beats in this episode still frame them as children. Yes. Like kids. Like they act like kids in this moment. Glimmer acts like a kid when she's writing angry letters. You know, Catra yeah. and Adora acts like kids when they sneak out. Like this is the innocence before the story. And now they're all dogpiling on top of each other trying to grab the thing. The thing that none of them are supposed to have anyway. Adora does eventually reach the sword first, touches it again, boom, light again. And this time she actually meets the strange voice in floaty magic tech hologram space. We didn't get there before. We didn't get there before. So now she sees Light Hope. She doesn't know it's Light Hope yet. But this time she gets to the actual words. The actual call that is the call. Will you fight for the honor of Grayskull? So that's the big call. And she doesn't know what's going on. She's asking questions. Don't get answered. What the shit? And then she wakes up as Bo and Glimmer's prisoner. What the shit, indeed. Light Hope, the Art Deco cyber mentor that we all need. Yeah. So we have Glimmer and Bo and Adora. Glimmer's pretty pleased with herself at this point. She's got a prisoner. She's she's going to prove everyone. She's going to prove to her mom that she can be a good commander. Mm-hmm. And they've got the first one's tech. So now they're heading back. And uh, Adora is also pretty serious. She prefers not to swap pleasantries with her captors, right? Oh, she's such a soldier. She is. Um, she's, you know, she's spouting off what she's learned. Mm-hmm. She doesn't see what's wrong with the Horde. She thinks that, you know, the Horde wants what's best for Etheria. Princesses are violent instigators who can't even control their own powers. Yep. And which, you know, Glimmer did not really do much to dissuade that argument, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> But then, you know, there's Bo giving her the side eye to reality check her a little bit. He's like, "Mm, you've never actually met a princess, have you? And that kind of shakes her a little bit at what her understanding of common knowledge is. Versus like, well, this is what Hordak has told you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, which makes sense for Adora, considering that this is the only family that she's ever known. And she does not understand- Why other people would call them the evil horde, as as Bo, you know, humorously points out. Yes, yes. But now they are about to stumble upon the wreckage of a village destroyed by the horde. So that's no good, right? I feel like that's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty rude awakening. Yeah, on the spectrum of rudeness. Yeah, it's pretty it's harsh. Pretty, rude. pretty harsh wake up call. Pretty harsh, dude. Adora doesn't believe it. She's like, no way. This is now. Yeah. And the only way that Glimmer can convince her that it's true is by showing her the horde bots, the horde symbols imprinted on all the buildings. The horde, you know, the horde was here. Haha, ha, fuck you. Here's our stamp. Pachung. We, we were right. here. We fucked you up. How did they get there? Like, what do they have? Like, is, do they have like a dedicated tagger who just follows them around with like, with like, you know, spray paint and a, and a stencil and is like, all right, Billy, time for you to go. Let folks know who it was. And you know, he like. <laughs> right? I have definitely wondered that too. That's Kyle's job. That's all he's good for. Also, okay, like, look, let's let's break this down just a tiny bit. Okay, fine. We understand that the visual point of this is to show that us, the viewer, sees that the horror did bad things. But in the universe, like, what's the point of showing, like, I, I, it's like, hey, so we conquered this village and it's now, like, fucking dust. 
like you know there's nothing here so we're just going to show you that we did they did this i it's a psychological warfare tactic right like is that what we're doing here yeah of course of course that serves no other purpose than to instill more fear there's a very small line that's also important i don't want to swift by it too fast that when glimmer and adora are still arguing over whether or not the horror did this when uh Adora says to Glimmer, Hordak says we're trying to make things better on Etheria, more orderly. And so that notion of better being more orderly, that's a real basic invoking of fascism. And is that another way of looking at magic versus tech, which is a big undercurrent of the whole show? Hmm. Ooh, that's tasty. Because Ma- magic is not orderly. No, no, it's not. And tech, technology is orderly. Fascism is very orderly. Yes. Just saying. Also just saying that we're literally showing, you know, they are tropes in uh, Western storytelling. The masculine, orderly, industrial, led by Hordak, the male, Mm. versus Mm -hmm. the soft, like it's literally called the moon, you know, it's bright moon. The soft, the magic, the nighttime, the woods, uh, organic shapes. And that's all, you know, from the rebellion. That's all Queen Angela, though. Yeah, that's fair. Drawing those parallels. But so actually, this is really gut-wrenching, this next part where Glimmer really gives Adora a good um, Mm how-to and really gives us another good insight into Glimmer's character and who she is. She's so devastated by by this devastation. Sorry, I know that's a horrible thing. She's devastated by the devastation. It really is gutting to Glimmer to see innocent lives lost and, you know, this village has been destroyed for no reason. And Adora, you know has no idea, was not a part of it, but that doesn't matter to Glimmer. You know, Glimmer is introducing her to the first time to guilt by complicity. Adora is part of this. She's part of the Horde. Yep, she is. Ever since they got here, so now also we know that the Horde hasn't been here forever, they've poisoned the land, destroyed the villages, everything, and you're a part of it. How's that for orderly? Adora's like, Yeah, Adora is shook. Shook. And, you know, she receives it. She hears it. But that doesn't matter anymore when a giant glowy bug enters the fray. Yay, monster time. It's monster time. Adora is willing to protect everybody, but Glimmer's like, fuck you. (laughs) Yep. Well, and also, not for nothing, it really is something that I will give Glimmer is the power of visual symbols. Again, imagine that Adora is a fucking Nazi soldier. And you're staring at a Nazi soldier with a swastika on their back. Imagine that. And you have to try to be like, yeah, I'm going to give you the weapon, Nazi soldier. Like, I I feel like Glimmer has a fair point on that side. Just saying. No, I mean, at this point, at this point, when they've literally just met and they were wrestling over a weapon, Glimmer's got a great point. For all she knows, Adora is going to just be like, haha, fuck you and take off. Like, at this point in the story, Yes. yes. Glimmer totally makes sense. Her motivations completely make sense. But also, like, yeah, she is making it a lot harder for Adora to save their lives. Exactly. Which sucks because guess what? Adora is going to have to save their damn lives. (laughs) Yes. So once again, boom, she touches the sword. Montage, images, light hope. Will you fight for the honor of Skull? Adora will. Now she's Avatar Shira. She has her big damn hero moment. Holy shit, she's mm-hmm. a Valkyrie. Mm-hmm. Her hair floats. Her cape floats. 
She's eight feet tall. She glows. She's fucking majestic. She's a Valkyrie. She's Avatar Shira. And cuts to black. Yep, and we all gay scream forever. Hooray. Gay screaming forever. Hooray, hooray. Forever and ever. That's the halfway point of a clear two-part episode. You're going to see so much more in our next episode. If you like what you heard and want to join us in more gay screaming, you can like and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. You can also email us at heyadoracast at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter and Instagram at heyadoracast. I, that's Mef, have been making Spotify playlists for each episode. You can find the links in the show notes or by visiting our site at heyadora.gay. Yeah, we got heyadora.gay! And you are welcome. You're welcome. Thank you, Queer Fam, for bearing with us through our first epic episode. Join us next time for The Sword Part 2. And remember, queer joy is radical. And queer love saves the universe! 